world after Noah, his family, and the animals get off the ark. Now, for the most part, when they get off the ark, things are pretty much the same. Now, there's a whole lot of people and a whole lot of animals dead, uh, and the earth is uh, slightly different in its uh, you know, formation, and there's no doubt some uh, uh, cosmological effects in that way. But um, it, for the most part, it's, it's still the earth that God created. But there is going to be a new covenant between God and mankind and those on the earth. And there's going to be some slightly new instructions. It's almost like God started over in a way. He saved eight people. He would have saved more, but eight were those that had faith. And so we're kind of back to square one. All of us come from Adam but also all of us come from Noah and his three sons. And so we ended our time last week looking at Noah's first act after getting off the ark. Does anyone remember the first act that Noah did after getting off the ark? Lincoln? Yeah, the big barbecue. Oh, that's good. He worshiped the Lord, right? We're told that he made an altar. Uh, He took some of those animals. Remember, he took some extra ones and he sacrificed and thanked the Lord Uh, for getting him through and being faithful to the promises of God. And so let's read Genesis chapter 9. Why don't we stand tonight for the reading of God's word? We're going to be in chapter 9. And at first, we're just going to read verse 1 to verse 17. And then later on in our study, we'll pick it up in verse 18. Uh, But let's start in verse 1. It's a pretty good chunk, so make sure you pay attention. Start with me in verse 1. You guys there? Bible's open? Verse 1. Word. Verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, and on all that move on the earth and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Praise the Lord. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely, for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of every man. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you. And with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, and of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant, which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Verse 14. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. 
and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Father, this is your word and we pray that you'd bless this study tonight. And in Jesus' name we pray, all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, it's a, an incredible chunk of, of scripture for us to go through and we're gonna, we're gonna do the best we can. We'll get as detailed as possible without being exhaustive. If you're taking notes, we're gonna look at the first seven verses at God's unchanging instruction. God's unchanging instruction. Now, I call these seven verses and title it this way because the things that are listed in these seven verses are still active to this day. The things that we're about to go over and what we just read, the Noahic covenant, meaning the covenant that God makes with Noah is still as active today as it was thousands of years ago. And so in these verses, we see three instructions, if we were to categorize them, regarding, these, regarding this covenant, this connection, this relationship, this promise that God makes with Noah and his family and those on the earth. Number one, he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. We find that, of course, in verse one. It's very straightforward. There's not really a lot of interpretation. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He basically tells Noah's sons, remember how many he had? He had three and they had wives, but no children yet. And so he says to Noah and his wives, it's time to get busy. Now, God reiterates the same mandate that he gave to Adam and Eve. Do you remember what he gave to Adam and Eve in the beginning? He told them, be fruitful and multiply. Now, get married and have children, but they were already married, and so it was time to begin to have children. Now, we, we know that this was given primarily to his sons and not to Noah because Noah didn't have any children after this. At least the, the scriptures don't indicate so. Now, notice though, he says be fruitful and multiply. That's very similar to what we talked about back in the early chapters of Genesis that he gave to Adam. And think about the importance of this, right? There was only eight people on the earth. And so if they didn't begin to have children and they died... You and I, we're not here, right? The, the mankind would have been wiped, wiped from the, the face of the earth. And so it was important to repopulate the earth. But notice he doesn't say subdue or rule over the earth. That was handed to Satan by Adam. Adam was told not only be fruitful and multiply, but he said have dominion and subdue or rule over this earth. But who knows what power was transferred to, to Satan? Uh, I just messed that whole question up. The power, the, the ruling of the world was transferred to Satan when Adam sinned. And so now the Bible says that he is the God of this age or he is the ruler of this world. And so uh, this has continued to be true that though the wicked people were wiped out, 
in the flood, Satan was not. But Adam, uh, sorry, Noah and his family were to fill the earth. Make sense? So that's an instruction that still goes today. God still desires that mankind would multiply and fill the earth. Now, secondly, you'll notice in verses two through four, the second instruction I am very excited about. I'm very happy that this changed because from the beginning, it was not so. Adam and Eve and those to follow up until the flood, they might have eaten meat, but they did not have the permission by God to. Some people think that was part of the sin of the violent world of, of the pre-flood age, that maybe one of the commandments uh, that they broke, one of the direct violations against God was the fact that they were eating animals. But uh, I'm very glad to say this has changed. In and out is certainly permitted. Now, God saw fit for some reason that this would change after the flood. I don't know exactly why. There's some theories and speculations, uh, but the Bible simply doesn't say. Uh, for whatever reason, God tells Noah that those animals that you took through the ark, your relationship with them is about to begin to change. Notice in your Bibles, verse 2. Verse 2 tells us a change in regard to animals. He says that they are going to begin to fear you and dread you. And he ultimately says the reason why is because uh, you can now uh, have some pork chops. You can now have some steak and some chicken legs and all kinds of stuff. You can now begin to eat animals. And so pre-flood, animals did not have a fear against man. Remember Adam in the garden? The animals would actually come up to him and he would be able to name them. But now, since they were permitted for food, they would get wiped out pretty quickly if they still came up to those trying to kill them. And so this fear and dread uh, towards mankind is put into animals in a general sense. It doesn't mean they can't be tamed. It doesn't mean your dog is necessarily afraid of you, though at times they might be because God has given you dominion over them, okay? But notice here that at the same time that God says animals are now per permitted to be food, notice what verse four says. He says, he, he makes sure to say that the blood should not be eaten. Now, I don't know about you, I don't have any desire to drink blood of the animals that I eat, uh, nor is that something I do. But, but he says that this shouldn't be done. He says, hey, you can start eating animals, Noah and Noah's sons, but don't eat or drink the blood. The reason being uh, is that we're told that the blood is its life. Blood is a symbol of life. We know this same instruction is confirmed in the Levitical law. You can note down Leviticus chapter 17, verses 11 through 12. Now this was a course for the Jews, but there is also that general instruction by God that we just read, but it's confirmed here in Leviticus. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, no one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. You see, the blood was something that was symbolic of life. It was to be sacred and not consumed. Blood was something to be reserved for sacrifice and not consumption. Now we know, being Christians and knowing the scriptures, 
that blood is something of, of the utmost importance in the Bible. Uh, you can know this just by the amount of times it is mentioned. If you're taking notes, blood in the Bible is mentioned 424 times in 357 different verses. New King James Version records blood mentioned 424 times in 357 different verses. Of course, we know that the most valuable thing in the world is someone's blood in particular. And whose blood would I be referring to? Of course, the blood of Jesus. It is not to be consumed. It is to be sacrificed. And the blood of Christ was sacrificed. And so, you know, additional to that, um, in a general sense, you know, we know that drinking blood is often connected with the demonic realm, who no doubt seeks to undermine the commandments of God. And so we ought to stay away from that kind of thing. Uh, and and we, we know that just in the occult and the, that world that you shouldn't, you sh- we should be ignorant and simple concerning. Uh, they do the opposite of what God has said, okay? So, but don't get crazy. You can still order your steak medium rare, okay? Don't, 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 if you order well done, then we can, we can pray for you after. But now, while on the topic of blood, God does add this now third and important instruction when talking about blood. And it's the fact of this. It's the fact that he would desire that capital punishment would be implemented for those of malicious murder. Verses five through seven, he kind of piggybacks on the topic of blood and, and killing of animals and now talks about, well, what about the killing of mankind? Does anyone know what capital punishment is? Just say it out loud. Death. Yeah, it's a, it's a death penalty. Okay, capital punishment is the death penalty. And we see here that God gives the logic of what must be established in any society to function properly. There was only eight people. If they began, like Cain and Abel, killing each other, they wouldn't last very long. We know that the pre-flood world was full of what? Sinners, wickedness, violence. We're told that the earth was filled with violence. And so he begins to implement giving the authority of judgment to Noah and his sons to begin to implement within their society and culture. That if someone sheds innocent blood, then their blood ought to be shed. Notice there are three times in these verses that God says, I demand. He says, I will demand a reckoning. And then notice additional in verse five, he says, I will require it. And then at the end of verse five, I will require the life of man. That word demand or require, it's the same word that is a judicial term that means to hold someone accountable. God says, if someone kills another human being, I hold everyone else who knows that accountable to put that murderer to death. Now, we know that God is the ultimate judge. He, in the end, will make all things right by his just judgment. But here we have an important instruction handed to Noah's family to be passed down uh, to uphold the value of human life and to how to deal with it when one takes a life. It is here that we have the first 
hint of a civil government being established. It's not formal yet, but God says, I give you part of my authority that when someone kills someone else, that person by the society must be put to death. Not for vengeance, but for justice. I got to think that this was a way for the mankind moving forward, not to just fall back into the very same things of the pre-flood. And so God establishes this in this way. Now, notice here, though, that God mentions, look in your Bibles, look at verse 5. God mentions that even if an animal kills a human, that the animal is then to be put to death. Now, we must ask ourselves a question. Why is it okay for man to kill an animal, but not okay for an animal to kill a man? Well, look at verse 6. The reasoning is mentioned here in verse 6, and it's the fact that man was made in the image of God. The reason that the death penalty and capital punishment should be something that our society practices and and this instruction given to by God is because mankind is of great value because the fact that God made them, you and I, in the image of God. And animals are simply not. It's not that God just says you can kill any animal you want. God describes in other passages the protection of even animal life in unnecessary cases. But after the fall and now after the flood, the image of God is still present in man. And so the reason that we would believe and and argue for capital punishment for the death penalty for in the case of murder is because of the value of human life. Does this make sense? Now, Genesis 9, 6, not only points to the value of human life, but also points forward, well, at that time, it would point forward to the one who would have his blood shed for us. Notice verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Look at the words shed. Everyone say shed. Sheds. This word means to be poured out. And it was Jesus's blood at Calvary that was shed on our behalf. He was murdered. He was killed so that you and I might not have to experience death. He took the punishment that we deserve. Because we have sinned against God, then The Bible describes that death is our punishment. And so this is even a a pointing forward to the fact that Jesus stepped into what God instructed and he was willing to take the punishment that we deserved. Pretty awesome. You find Jesus all over the Bible. And so these three instructions for mankind have not changed since the flood. These are still God's expectations generally. Now, additional to that, we find in the New Testament uh, by the apostles that these things are confirmed. In the New Testament, uh, we find that having children is still a good thing. We find that eating meat is still an acceptable thing. It's good. Uh, It's not bad. Uh, But even we see the apostles say, but stay away from blood. And then, of course, capital punishment for murder. 
we find that God says, listen to the local government that seeks to implement this type of thing, all right? And so the new covenant in Jesus doesn't exclude the Noahic covenant, which is just a fancy term to say the covenant that God made with Noah, okay? Make sense? So that's the instruction given. But let's, give to the, let's move on to the assurance given. If you're taking notes, we find then in verses 8 through 17, God's unconditional assurance or promise. God's unconditional assurance. And this is where we are introduced, of course, to the rainbow. So this word covenant was mentioned by God originally when he spoke to Noah. Remember back in Genesis 6, when God came to Noah and said, Noah, you have found grace in my eyes, and I want to establish my covenant with you. Back in Genesis chapter 6, this was the first time this word appeared in the Bible. It will certainly not be the last. Genesis 6, 18, he says, I will establish my covenant with you. Now, this was years earlier from Genesis 9, from the point that we're now in. And so now in Genesis 9, we have that covenant brought up once again. If you're taking notes, additional to chapter 6, the word covenant is mentioned seven more times in chapter 9 for a total of eight times regarding the story of Noah. You have one in chapter 6, and you have seven more references to the word covenant uh, in chapter 9. Now, a covenant always has two sides. There is a part to play for both involved. We just saw our part or mankind's part to play with those three instructions. Be fruitful and multiply. You can eat meat, just don't eat the blood. And then also, Uh, we need to begin as a culture to implement capital punishment. But the other side of this covenant that God makes with Noah is his side. And so we notice in verses 8 through 11, if you're taking notes, we find the summary of the covenant. And there's kind of, he just, God kind of summarizes, okay, what is his part? What's his role? What, What part of the promise does God hold up? Well, notice here that God speaks with Noah and his sons in verse 8. And God says that this covenant is established with you and your descendants after you. Who would be included in as Noah's descendants? All of us in this room and every single person to live since the flood meaning that the Noahic covenant that we're talking about in Genesis 9 was not just for Noah and his three sons and their wives, but it includes even you and I to this day. Then verse 10, verse 10 includes all those animals that were on the ark. Listen, this covenant was not just with, for people, that God actually makes a covenant with the animals, all those that had to endure that year's time in the ark He says to them as well that I will never again. Look at verse 11. It summarizes it. I will never again cut off all flesh. He will never again do this by water. 
God will never again send a great flood globally. Are there local floods? Absolutely. But God says, I will never again send a global flood. And so that's the summary of the covenant. But then we find in verses 12 through 17, the sign of the covenant. And what is the sign of the covenant? The rainbow, of course. Now, not all covenants have a sign, but some do. A sign is the idea of a symbol. Think about the covenant of marriage. What is a sign or symbol of the covenant of marriage? Yeah, a wedding ring, right? A ring. A ring. And, and what is that symbol? It symbols commitment. It symbols that I belong to someone else. It symbols that I have committed my life to someone, which means I've said no to every other person on the planet. And in a similar way, the rainbow has a certain symbol. It has a certain sign of something. And it's of God's promise to never again flood the earth. Now we got to think about this. Because I know that you have heard of the rainbow. I'm sure that this is not something new for most of you. But before this, before this point of Genesis 9, there was never a rainbow in the sky because it never rained. There were never any clouds carrying water the way it does now. And so there was never a rainbow in the sky. Now, it's interesting to me that in the sovereignty and providence of God, which is God's ability to control everything. Nothing is out of control under God's heaven. That he would use a natural means for a supernatural promise. Let me ask you this. Is a rainbow a supernatural phenomenon? It is not. It is explained by light refraction with water droplets, but Think about it. It is in the creative power of God that he uses something that he created in nature as a reminder of how he keeps his promise. So much so that now thousands of years later, we still see rainbows in the sky and that is still designed by God to tell us, I'm going to honor my covenant with you. And it's awesome because as we can look at the rainbow, and as, whenever we see rainbows, we should stop. We should take pictures. We should meditate on it. It is the point. It is a sign. Just like if someone were to see my ring, what does that tell them? It tells them I, that I'm married. It, it, it is a physical sign to show something that you cannot necessarily see. And so when we see the rainbow, not only should it remind us that God says, I'll never again flood the earth. But if God has been able to keep his covenant that he made with Noah 20, I don't even know how long ago this, I guess this was, thousands of years earlier, then can God keep his covenant, his new covenant in Jesus to us? Absolutely. And so though the world has hijacked the rainbow, have they not? We shouldn't let them. The rainbow was God's invention and it is a reminder of the faithfulness of God. And so never shy away from the rainbow. Now, something else interesting. One commentator talks about the word bow. Because notice what he says. He says, I put my bow in the sky. Right? And it is in the shape of a bow. Have you guys ever uh, 
um, done archery before, bow and arrow. All right, rainbow is typically in the shape of a bow. Now, some commentators say it's as if God is hanging up his battle bow as a sign of peace. Other places in the scripture, when the word bow is mentioned, it's referring to battle, uh, those who would be archers. Now, it is a time of peace right now. As the rainbow, God has still put up his bow in, in the sky, right? Because the flood was in a sense by God, this, this act of war, right? There was an act of war waged against him. It was called sin. And so God dealt with it. The Bible says that God is a man of war. Did you know that? In the book of Exodus, God is a man of war. And so is the rainbow a symbol of peace? But there will be one day that God picks up the bow again. It won't be with water, but it will be by fire. Now, I want to point your attention to just two more things, and we'll move on to the end. Notice in verse 12, he says, for perpetual generations. The idea of that is every generation that follows. So that's you and me. And then notice again in, in verse 16, he says, that this covenant is everlasting. Everyone say everlasting. Everlasting is the idea of never ending, which means there will never be a point that God breaks the Noahic covenant. It is still in existence and effect today. And so listen, regardless of what those who claim global warming might say, we have no fear that the, that the, the earth will be flooded in a global scale. What they do need to fear is not global warming in the sense of water, but yeah, fire is certainly coming. Now let's read the, the last portion of chapter nine, which I've titled Noah's Unfortunate Ending. You know, Noah had a really good run. Uh, by and large, he has a great reputation in the Bible. Other than what we're about to read, he really has no negative things said about him. However, a good beginning never assures a good ending. Did you guys hear me? Just because you follow the, G, the, the Jesus, <laughs> just because you follow Jesus now, because you follow the Lord now doesn't mean you'll follow him at the end of your life. It is a daily walk, never to be rested upon your past, but to be taking steps towards him every day. Now let's read, starting in verse 18, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter. Because this, the end of the chapter, verse 29, closes the book upon the history of Noah. Verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three sons, these three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the whole earth was populated. Verse 20. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father." Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine 
and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, the son of Ham, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Verse 28, And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Now, we aren't exactly sure how much time passes before this takes place. Noah gets off the ark, and it looks like things are going to go very well. He worships the Lord as his first act. He hears from the Lord. But now, at least enough time has passed where Noah has gotten a new hobby. He has established a way where he... In in a way where he picks up this new occupation, he plants a vineyard. And there's enough time for that vineyard to grow and enough time for to pass where the, the wine, the juice from the grapes, that it ferments and becomes alcohol. Now, listen, Noah and his family left a lot behind in the pre flood world. They left behind most likely family most likely friends, their home. But there is one thing that wasn't left behind, and that was their sinful nature. And other than this ending passage regarding Noah's life, there's nothing bad to be said about Noah. We're told in the Bible that Noah was a man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, who was righteous and just in the eyes of the Lord, who walked with God and even was perfect in his generations according to God. Yet, from this story, we see that even Noah was not out of reach of that sin that lies at the door. Do you guys remember in the story of Cain and Abel, when God warned Cain, sin lies at the door? That is true for every human. And as true as it was for Cain, it is also true for Noah. Yet, Noah should have ruled over it. Now, by and large, Noah lived in a way that honored the Lord. But just because you have a good beginning doesn't guarantee a good what? Ending. Sadly, this is the last recorded story about Noah. Sin can rob us and rob so many of ending well. Now, what happens? I know we read it, but I'm going to quickly go over it. Noah becomes drunk. We're told that he becomes uncovered in his tent. Then... His younger son, Ham, the middle child, entered his tent and saw the nakedness of his father. Now, at this point, there's no sin that's happening on the part of Ham. It was here, though, that Ham failed to do the one thing that he should have done, which was to cover his father and leave. No doubt, Noah was in a sinful state and a shameful state, but we see that instead, Ham leaves Noah's tent, goes to his brothers, and tells them what had happened. Now, it's not apparent in the text, but when you know the Hebrew language, when it says that he told his brothers, the Hebrew indicates that Ham told his brothers with delight. That it wasn't with, oh my gosh, this happened to dad. I don't know. I've never seen him like this. I don't know why, what happened. No, he's telling them, we're told, with delight. Now, we don't know the details of why Ham acted this way, 
Was it that he was finally happy to see this great man do something wrong because of his own sinful heart? You see, the sin wasn't the fact that he saw his father in this way, but it was that he dishonored his father because in this state of weakness, in this state of sin. We're told, in, in contrast, notice what Shem, uh, Shem, Shem and Japheth, notice how they respond. So Ham tells them, and they don't, they don't just go and, and, and mock what happened. We're told that notice the extent that they go to, that they take a blanket and they, they have it on their shoulders and they walk in backwards and their head is turned and they lay it on their father. They were trying to honor their father opposite of what Ham did. So we're told that Noah wakes up and finds out what happened and what Ham did to him. And he makes some prophetic words toward Ham and his descendants along with the other two sons. Now, I don't know about you guys, I wish the Bible just didn't record this. Now it's God's word, and so it's in here for a purpose. But I wish I had an untainted view of Noah, but we simply don't. There are two takeaways for us from the story of Noah, and this one in particular, and it's the fact that Satan comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. He wanted in the middle of this tight-knit family, and he got in the middle of it, and notice how he did. Look at the means, the way that he got in. It was through alcohol. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober, be vigilant, uh, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Noah wasn't careful. He gets off of the ark and he let his guard down. He walked right into where the enemy would want him. Now think about it. The only humans Satan could seek to disrupt at this point would be Noah and his family. At this point, Satan probably has never messed with any one of us. Now his minions, his, his um, military of demon, demonic fallen angels, no doubt. We've all encountered that whether we know it or not. But Satan is not omnipresent. But in this instance, he's only got eight people to mess with. And so he doubled down on Noah. Now is drinking alcohol a sin? No, but getting drunk certainly is. And so where is the line? The Bible doesn't say alcohol is a sin, but it certainly, listen, warns against it. Proverbs chapter 20, verse one says this, wine is a mocker. How true that is for Noah. Strong drink is a brawler and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Was anyone here Sunday when we talked about it? Ephesians chapter five, verse 18 do you remember this verse from Sunday? And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation or reckless and wasteful living. You see, if Noah had just not, if he had just drank water, he wouldn't have never got to this point. It, 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 he would not have got drunk from water, but he chose to create this vineyard, which is not inherently sinful, but he messed with fire and he got burned. You see, alcohol is a depressant. It loosens people because it depresses 
their self-control, their wisdom, their balance, and judgment. Would Noah have ever been in this state if he had not touched alcohol? No. You see, the filling of the Spirit has the exact opposite effect. The Holy Spirit's not a depressant. He is one who stimulates our thinking and influence every part of us to be better. Proverbs 31, verse 4 through 7 says, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law, and pervert justice of all the afflicted, give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his misery no more. Is alcohol a sin? No. But does the Bible warn against it? Absolutely. Now, additional to that, and secondly, what do we get from this story? Why does God have this story in here? Well, it's not just to see Noah's bad example, but it's to see Ham's bad example. Listen, I don't know if you know this yet, but your parents are not perfect. That's when you should laugh, okay? Listen, when they do sin, which they will, and listen, as you get older, you will begin to recognize this more and more. We should not follow in Ham's footsteps. Rather than exposing our parents' shame when they do sin, we should seek to cover them as, uh, as the other two brothers. We shouldn't put them on blast saying, well, you told me to never do this and now you're doing it but rather we should bring comfort to them. This is how you and I can honor mom and dad even when they do nothing wrong. Were the brothers, the sons of Noah, were they adults? Yes, they had wives. And yet the command was still for them to honor their mother and father and Ham did nothing of the sort. Now as we close Look at the last two verses to end the story of Noah. Noah lived after the flood 350 years. Now, I'm hoping that Noah would learn from his mistake and maybe this would be the last time he'd ever touch alcohol. We don't know. But nonetheless, Noah was a remarkable man who served God in his generation. Uh, But I want to just point something out to you. So next week, we're going to be in the last two chapters of our series, chapters 10 and 11 which are the table of nations, meaning it it will indicate to us where all the nations came from, and, of course, the Tower of Babel. Now, I want to just throw this out there, and then we'll we'll close and pray and, and worship together. So I've made mention to some timelines of the Bible along the way. Right? Some, different, some different things to think about regarding the closeness of the patriarchs, meaning men like Adam, men like Noah. We know if, if the genealogies are correct, which we trust they are, because it's God's word. If the genealogies don't have gaps, which there's no indication that they do, Noah would have actually lived until after the Tower of Babel. And he would have, not ha- he would have died if not after, but right around the birth of Abraham, okay? Which means this, which means at least this, okay? And I just want to show you this because it's crazy. I have this wrong. Shoot. Okay, switch 
switch Adam and Abraham, okay, and you'll get this right. <laughs> I don't know how my, okay, so see where the name Adam is? Put it where Abraham is. Where they, the name Abraham is, put it where Adam. So Adam would have known Methuselah. Methuselah was the longest person that lived in the Bible. Okay, so Adam was the first person. Methuselah was the longest living person. And they would have lived during the same time. Methuselah is whose grandfather? Anyone know? He's Noah's grandfather, which makes him the great-great-grandfather of Shem. Okay? For sure, as a matter of fact, Shem was alive during the same time as Abraham and at one point before Methuselah died, which means this. There's four people that could have been in contact between Adam and Abraham, which comes to pass about 2,500 years from the beginning of the earth all the way till, of course, what we know him as Father Abraham. So Adam, of course, would have known Methuselah. Methuselah could have known Shem because they would have lived at the same time. That would have been his great-great-granddaddy. And then Shem would have been alive during the same time as Adam. Okay, so that's just a little, little bonus thing for you. It's crazy. Sorry, Abraham. I will explain that better if you come and ask me. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we thank you for the Bible. God, we thank you that uh, it's so accurate that we can even, Lord, look at the genealogies and, and look at the, the details. And it can be something where we, uh, Lord, just glorify you because of the accuracy. Lord, it's not just this made up book. And God, we pray as we looked tonight at, Lord, your instruction to us and Lord, just the, the faithfulness of your covenant and Lord, the warnings from the life of Noah, God, we pray that we would, we would walk with you. Lord, though we are walking with you right now, Lord, that doesn't mean that that guarantees, Lord, us continuing to pursue you later. That's a day-to-day -day battle. And we just pray that we would focus on today because you told us in your word that today is sufficient for its own trouble. And so God, we cast our cares upon you. We commit to you our worries. We love you and we praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.